Hello, beloved. Daniel 7, part 2. And be ready, if you will, to turn back to Mark 13. We ran out of time last week. So I just want to make sure we're clear of context. Daniel 7. Focus this morning will be verses 15 to 28. Open in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Mercies that are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for this church. Your loving kindness shown to us. And Lord, help us to understand your living word this, this day. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel... My spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, And which was larger in appearance than its associates, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed over, passed in favor um, of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and I will devour the whole earth and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming, greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, and I kept the matter to myself. Um, Daniel 7 is a vision given to Daniel by God of four great beasts tracing four Gentile nations um, from the time of Judah's exile until the inauguration of Messiah, the inauguration of the King of Kings' kingdom. Daniel, remember, was written to those in exile 
taken away, um, along with um, subsequent generations that would um, sit under um, foreign domination, which obviously would have raised many questions in their minds. You know, what will happen next? What, are the, what does the future hold for us? And that answer is here in Daniel. Daniel answers the question, Israel will be governed and dominated by four consecutive Gentile world kingdoms from the time of Judah's exile into Babylon until the coming of the king. Okay, so what of the promised Messiah? What of the kingdom? Well, that's answered here as well. And a careful reading and um, studying Scripture in light of Scripture um, provides the answer. The promise will be fulfilled and the saints will receive the kingdom as promised. Now, remember, the messianic kingdom does not arise from this earth. It does not come from out of this earth. The kingdom, his kingdom, comes down to earth from heaven. Jesus was clear. Remember when Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world? He did not mean his kingdom doesn't manifest itself in the world. He did not mean that it does not have incredible implications for the world. Or that it wouldn't transform the world. It will transform the world, but it does not come from out of, it does not originate from this world. It comes down to. The source of his kingdom does not come from out of this world. Otherwise, Jesus said, my servants would do what servants of kings do. And what do they do? They fight. But my kingdom's not from out of this world. It does not originate from here. Therefore... They don't fight like that. His kingdom is brought about by God, brought about by the Spirit of God. Um, it's a sanctifying kingdom. It's a life-transforming kingdom. It manifests itself within the lives of the saints. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not based on temples. It's not based on buildings. And you can tell Islam it's not based on bombs. Amen? Amen? It's based on God himself, the saints, they receive this kingdom because of their king who conquers sin and death. And there's only one. It's the Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of man, we read, who ascended to the ancient of days where his, at his coronation and exaltation he was given dominion. If you look there in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, recall Jesus' words in the Great Commission. All power and authority on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
So Messiah established his kingdom. The saints receive their standing in that kingdom. They take possession of that kingdom, and they take in the the privileges and the duties of citizenship within that kingdom. We hear Jesus' words to the disciples, go and and make. Now, unfortunately, um, the majority um, of evangelical believers today want to interpret this with the Lord's coming to earth from the clouds. That's Christ's descent with regard to the second coming. But as we've seen, hopefully we've seen this clearly, and hopefully, if not, we'll see more clearly this morning, this is not about his second coming, this is about his first coming. The prophecy of Daniel, the prophecies of Daniel are about his first coming. So turn, if you will, back, or forward rather, to to Mark 13. When Jesus says, notice, they will see the Son of Man, verse 26, coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Okay, that is not a descent from heaven, but that is the Lord's ascent into heaven, the glorified God-man, Jesus Christ. So the result in the context of Matthew 13 is the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Okay, we see that back in verse 1. Notice, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And then as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? What things? The things regarding the temple and not one stone being left upon another. Okay, That's the context to which Jesus speaks, and and that will culminate in A.D. 70, the destruction of this temple. Now, the source of this idea, beloved, is not me. It's Scripture. It's the Old Testament. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, um, other portions of Scripture do speak about Jesus coming in the clouds from heaven, i.e. Acts 1.11, Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation 14, but not here. Not here. This coming of the Son of Man, verse 26, is an allusion to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus, the glorified God-man, ascends to the Ancient of Days, not a coming to earth from heaven, but a coming to God into heaven to receive vindication and authority. And when he says they will see They will see the Son of Man. That is, they will see him, the Christ, the Son of Man, in the sense that they will understand, they will spiritually perceive that everything the temple symbolized is found now in King Jesus, who rules over the nations. Destruction will come. He rules the universe. The temple that was standing 
will be dethroned. Jesus is enthroned. His vindication is proven as the enthroned king according to Psalm 2 in Psalm 110. As prophesied, he will ascend, the Son of Man, to the right hand of the Ancient of Days. The sign that proved he was in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, was him, the Son of Man, unleashing judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. And then, okay, now notice as you work your way through, Jesus refers to this as great tribulation. You will see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. Let the reader understand. That is the reader of Daniel's prophecy, Matthew says. Let him understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, there'll be a destruction of the temple that's not complete that, that happened a couple hundred years prior to this. We'll look at that next week in another vision. And it foreshadows a greater one, which is the one that will occur in 70 AD. Those who are on the housetop do not go down, verse 15. Woe to those who are pregnant in those days, verse 17. Pray that it may not happen in winter, verse 18. For those days there will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will be. That's apocalyptic language as I pointed out. You also find that language in Exodus 11 with regard to the ten plagues on Egypt. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 9. It's a style of language to describe something great. And this is great destruction. In those days after that tribulation, verse 24, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. That's familiar apocalyptic language as well. That is language that depicts the falling of nations. And that shows up in Isaiah 13.10 and Ezekiel 32.7. So Jesus is using language that's very common um, to the people um, in this day. Then they will see, that is they will perceive Daniel 7.13-14 through 14, of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power. And then notice... From there, his coming in judgment, that's a reference to, to Old Testament um, language, and that is the coming of God. In the Old Testament, when we read about the coming of God, we're reading about his judgment. Now, notice this angels. From there, the Son ascends, the Son of Man ascends, and it's from there he will send out his angels to gather his elect. Now, the word angels literally means what? Messengers, okay? Messengers. And that may refer here, that may refer to human preaching of the gospel throughout the world, i.e. Re Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches in Asia Minor, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right. That is, to the messenger of these churches, right, and then the Lord gives instruction and warning. Notice God gathers his elect by sending, literally, his messengers to proclaim the gospel. So in the context to chapter 13, is not in reference to an end time harvest. It's 
not a secret rapture, but to the global growth of the church of Jesus Christ, that is the extension of his kingdom throughout the kingdom age, and that is, up until this point now, the present age of the kingdom. He sends out his messengers from there. He's ascended. He's received power and authority, and from there he sends out his messengers to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Remember in Daniel's uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 35, the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands? Hey, that's Jesus. It strikes the image. And we read the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. That's the picture of the kingdom growing. Daniel 7, 22, and his saints possess the kingdom. Why? Peter tells us they are living stones. They are a spiritual house, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, with regard to Jesus sending out his angels, if he's referring to literal angelic beings, and he may be, then he would be, then he would be saying that by way of the preaching of the gospel to the nations, that work is attended by the presence of angels. Look at Hebrews 1.14. Angels are what? Ministering spirits set out by God to minister to those who will inherit salvation. In other words, God's elect. God's elect. So everything that Jesus describes in chapter 13, verse 1 all the way down to verse 30 is a reference to what will occur in 70 AD. Notice, truly I say to you, verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All what things? All those things in context to the destruction of the temple for which the disciples asked about in verses 1 through 4. All that. That's great tribulation. When you see this happening and that happening, the time is not yet, but it's near. Jesus goes on to say, but when these things happen, the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, get out of Dodge. Get out of town. Run for the hills. And I will tell you this, of those people living in this generation, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Notice verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, what day and hour? When heaven and earth pass away, no one knows. Now you know the days preceding the judgment on the temple, but of a new heaven and new earth, no one knows that day. Not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Eschatology all cleared up now? Okay, back to Daniel. I want us to understand the coming of the Son of Man into the clouds. And Jesus in his teaching in Matthew 13. It's vital that we understand this because it's one of the most mistaught portions of Scripture in the world today, especially in America. Back to Daniel, verses, uh, chapter 7. Verses 15 to 18 are a summary interpretation. 
And then in verses 19 and following, he's given his request. Daniel wants to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, that is, the fourth kingdom with iron teeth and claws of bronze. The little horn, that is, that wages war with the saints and prevails against them. That's what he wants to know. Notice verse 22. And he does so until the ancient of days came. Question, came where? To earth? No. Again, this is an expression from the Old Testament of God coming to earth in a sense, but coming in judgment. Coming in judgment. And this again corresponds to Jesus' teaching in Mark 13, from where we just read, of the Son of Man coming with the clouds with great power and glory, that is, with great judgment. Judgment. You know, in Revelation 2 and 3, seven churches in Asia Minor, Jesus speaks to the church that if you do not, come, if you do not repent, I will what? I will come to you. Meaning, I will come to purge the evil from out of you. I will come in judgment on the church, which precedes his final coming judgment to the world, for those of you that were in our study Revelation. So it's language used of, of God coming in judgment. He will show, he will manifest his judgment in, in certain ways and in warnings for which he gave even his own church. So as we move on in verses 23 to 27, Daniel 7 describes the nature and conquests of the fourth beast. That is, beloved, of the fourth kingdom which is different, which is diverse from the, the other kingdoms described. Notice, treading down all others. That is Rome. A very different kingdom. Now, Rome is unique in many ways. As mentioned last time, um, it was a republic. It had divided power for a quite a long period of time. And again, this Rome being mentioned, this is not a yet future Rome from our day. This is not an end time confederacy. That would create a fifth kingdom. For those who want to interpret this as an end time resurrected Rome in some end time confederacy of 10 nations coming together at the very end of time, that's a fifth kingdom. This vision has to do with four kingdoms, not five. And this is what Daniel prophesies about. It's the fourth kingdom in the vision. The three preceding visions were, were all ruled by a supreme sovereign. Rome would be diverse, made up of, of councils and a senate and a general assembly. But eventually something dramatic will take place. Verse 24, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Now, not wanting to repeat ourselves at length here, beloved, we're dealing with symbolic literature. We're dealing with symbolic numbers, um, apocalyptic style um, writing, um, as we discussed and covered particularly in verses 7 and 8. Number 10 is a symbolic number. 
10. It's a multiplicity. It's, it's many who shared power during this, this fourth kingdom. That's Rome, and they had at their disposal, obviously, a, a mighty and powerful military, and they ruled with an iron fist. So this beast has 10 horns. It represents great power. 10, great power. Multiplied power. This was the era of the Roman Republic that ran all the way down until about 27 B.C. 27 B.C. And then another horn arose, different, notice, from the previous ones. It's a little horn, verse 8. Little horn, verse 8. Now, when we look at verse 24, we see and we understand by now, this is a form of government. The era of the Republic of Rome came to an end with the rise of this little horn that creates the second era of the kingdom known as the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. And rule was then centered on one individual titled Caesar. Caesar. Now, that change did not come about peacefully. It came by way of conflict, by a couple civil wars, and this one was under Julius, the Caesar. Believing that the only thing that could save the government was centered on himself. Caesar, a dictatorship. A dictatorship. So, according to the context... According to history, Little Horn is not some future antichrist, but is a reference to the era of the Caesars. Little Horn. Not one particular Caesar, but an office of Caesars. This Little Horn, who boasts, as we'll see, great things. So, Daniel's fourth beast, and John's beast of Revelation 13 rising up out of the sea as we covered last time are one and the same. In other words, it's Rome. It's Rome. And it's series of self-proclaimed ruling deities. Self-proclaimed deities. You think of Nero who ruled the city with seven hills, that is Rome, and who waged war on Christ's people. Little horn, once again, is a form of government. Caesar's. Verse 25, notice, okay, notice the actions of this little horn, these Caesar's, and it's not their conquests and accomplishments, which were great, but notice, instead, the focus is on little horn's rebellion against Almighty God and his kingdom. That's the focus. Claiming as they did, the Caesars, divine honor. Claiming divine honor. To be considered as gods. And remember, altars and temples were erected unto these Caesars. And throughout the empire, worship of the Caesar was showing true loyalty to Rome. 
loyalty. Which meant all people throughout the Roman Empire, which by the way was polytheistic. It was a polytheistic world, meaning many gods, many false deities. So what was required was that the citizens show their chief allegiance to Rome by bowing before Caesar. Amen? And what would they confess? Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And if there's a conflict between Caesar and my family, Caesar and my religion, Caesar and my customs, I must yield to Caesar. I must bow before Caesar because Rome is divine. Rome is savior of the world. Rome is divine come down among men. A little horn. You know, Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, changed his name to Augustus, the august one, the majestic one, the grand one, who sent heralds to the four corners of the earth, the four corners of the Roman Empire, rather, declaring there is no name given among men except Augustus by which men can be saved. That's before Peter said it, that there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ, King of Kings. Acts 4.12, Peter flips the script and he heralds the name, the true name above all names, Jesus. He's the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, not the august one. Now, in the, long, in the days long before um, Twitter accounts, politicians had to be more creative. And Augustus's method was to mint coins. So you would spread the message out to the empire by minting coins. And on one of those coins, what do you think it read? There is no name except Augustus by which men can be saved. Is that boasting something great? Another, on another coin on the front depicts Augustus. On the back, it depicts Julius Caesar ascending, guess where? Into heaven as a comet. Referring to himself as son of God, Lord and Savior of men. Needless to say, he, this horn, this little horn, this office of Caesars, speak great things against the Most High, verse 25. Now, believers would not, believers could not abide by the self-deified claims of the Caesars, and they refused to bow. Ironically, Christians were the best citizens in the Roman Empire. Remember in Romans 13, Paul writes during the time of Nero, of all people, and he taught the duty of citizenship. And that is, the powers that be, Paul writes, 
They're ordained by God. It's not hard to understand if they understood Daniel in the exile. So the best citizens of Rome, Rome mercilessly put to death. Why? Because they could not say Caesar is Lord. They would not say there's no name, there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and it's the Caesar. So they were put to death. So Little Horn then, Little Horn the Caesars, makes war with the saints. Notice he wears them down, verse 25. Wears them down. That means to wear away. Did they do that in the first century? You better believe it. Nero, for instance, was such a monster. I mean, we, we, we can't even discuss here the perversities of that man and what he did. Other Caesars persecuted with torture, banishment, confiscation of Christians' property, destruction of their meeting places, and ultimately death. Raging persecution through the fury of this little horn, that is, the Caesars, who boasted great things against Almighty God. Verse 25, he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. That's a claim of autonomy. So the epic of time that God established, Messiah's kingdom, it has been inaugurated. They reject it. The stone that struck the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they would not submit to that. That's the idea. They would not submit to that. They intend to make alterations. He, little horn, intends to make alterations in times and law. Okay, now, contrast that, verse 25, with what was said in Daniel 2.21. Look at it. It is he, God, who changes times and epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Only God changes epics. Only God changes times. And he, little horn, verse 25, will intend to make alterations in times and laws. So for the duration of the fourth beast's rule, Daniel sets it at a time Times and half a time. Unfortunately, again, in our day, that is often referred to as the second half of a seven-year tribulation at the end of history. But again, that does not fit the context at all. Not at all. The Bible doesn't teach a seven-year tribulation at the end of time, as we'll see next week, unless you press it into the text, most specifically Daniel 9. Because if you think God has a plan for ethnic Jews and a plan for his church that are distinct from one another, you've got to get the church off the earth to have this seven-year tribulation and the rebuilding of a temple, of all things. Pretty creative. So again, 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, a times, time, and half a time are all synonymous terms 
for a limited time of tribulation. Tribulation. A restricted time where the wicked seem to be triumphant. Seven is a number of wholeness. Three and a half, if you will, is a broken seven. It's not complete. They don't have full control. They cannot wage full war and annihilate God's people. There's no way. This is a time given that is temporary, though they suffered a long time. We will see when we get to the Messianic prophecy in Daniel 9. That is interpreted in in, in John, I should say in the Revelation by John, as a reference to the entire time between the Lord's first and second comings. That is tribulation. Do you know you're in the tribulation right now? Do you also know you're in the kingdom right now? You're in the kingdom that Christ established. He'll consummate the kingdom when he comes back the second time. He's established the kingdom. This is also a time of tribulation. If you don't think it's a time of tribulation, go tell it to the saints that we're reminded of this month who are suffering persecution around the world. Tell them they're not in tribulation. See what they say. This is what John meant in Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, I am your brother and fellow partaker in the what? Tribulation and what? And kingdom. Verse 26. But although God allows little horn to boast great things and persecute God's people, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. That is to say this, beloved, Rome incurred judgment, did they not? Yes, but it was not immediate as was God's judgment on Sodom. God's judgment on Sodom was immediate. Fire fell from the sky. But this was a process of judgment over time. The end of Rome came slowly but surely over centuries. Like cancer cells. Just sitting there. They multiply. And they devour. Over hundreds of years. Verse 27, the Son of Man, Jesus, his royal power will be shared by the saints, those who overcome. And that's what Jesus meant in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Those who overcome, they will rule with the king. We share in his royal power. There are saints in heaven right now. They're ruling with the Lord. We'll rule, we rule with the Lord. We, we, we are a kingdom of what? Priests. Now, there are other perspectives regarding the Caesars. I mean, studies have been done by those who do identify 10 actual kings. We do have a very documented history of Rome, no doubt about it. So that is to say, um, these things, that is, these 10 kings which I see as one, or these 10 kings and one little horn. Um, Some people, some scholars specify um, who they are, who they represent historically, or um, others view it as I do or as we do, um, our leadership at least, that it represents a multiplied force through the string of kings up to the first coming of Christ. 
in those early years um, of the church. That's open to question. If you want to identify 10 kings historically, that's fine. Those things are up for question, and that's okay. What I do not believe is open to question is that this passage is referring to some future tribulation period, some future antichrist, which creates a gap between the beast and the ten horns. I don't believe that's up for question at all. I mean, you might, you might put it up and question it, but, but not rightly so. It doesn't fit. An end-time, ten-nation confederacy out of which this antichrist arises, that is this little horn. I, it's not here. All the, because all of these images are part of the what? The fourth beast. The fourth beast. The fourth empire. When that stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands shatters the image. And undeniably, that has to do with the first coming, not the second, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You follow this? You see this, beloved? And honestly, and I say this lovingly, if you believe that there's a seven-year end-time tribulation, seven-year tribulation, and an antichrist that rises up, I ask you, just show, just show in the text where that is. From where do you get that? You know, I told you I tried to adopt that view. And all I could do was regurgitate the scenario. And when I studied it, I couldn't support it at all. The stone that grows, the stone taken out of the mountain grows, we, we read, into a mountain and it fills the whole earth. That is the kingdom age. We're part of that. It covers the earth. It's still spreading. So that is to say Daniel 7, beloved, is a vision certainly not of the Son of Man who sits on a literal throne in Jerusalem as premillennial um, dispensationalism teaches. What is it that all the Jews ever wanted? The majority of Jews, what did they want? A literal king who sat on a throne in literal Jerusalem ruling a political kingdom. That's what they wanted. A political Messiah. That was the goal of history in their eyes. And that is what dispensational premillennialism believes. Jesus sitting on a literal political throne ruling the nations in a political fashion. That's the same error that the Jews make. They teach, and you may, maybe you believe this now, but, or maybe you did believe this. They teach that Jesus will sit on that throne for a literal thousand years from Revelation 20, millennial reign. And we, we've taught what that means. We believe that truly, clearly means. But they teach that he'll sit there for a literal 1,000 years, after which there's another fall. Another fall. Does that make sense? Not according to scripture. Because Jesus, who conquered sin, conquered death, he came, we read in 1 John 3.18, to destroy the works of 
the devil. And there's another fall? After a thousand years where Satan is let loose to deceive the nations? See, Satan being bound for a thousand years means that Satan is bound from, what does the text say? Deceiving the nations. The nations are no longer deceived because the gospel is spreading out to the four corners of the earth and it's changing one life at a time. The kingdom spreads. The stone turns into a mountain and covers the earth. That's happening now. After the millennial reign of Christ, which is now, whatever it looks like that Satan is released to deceive again, maybe that is now. Maybe he's presently doing that. Maybe we do see a great falling away right now. But I don't believe you can support any stance that he sits in a literal throne ruling the world politically. Um, this is the reign of the Son of Man. He, he did not establish that kind of a kingdom, a political kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. Now and forevermore. Okay, let me read two passages. Oh, actually, look at them. Look at, look at Revelation 1, verse 12 and through 14. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a, a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his, and his hair were, like, were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His eyes like a flame of fire. Who does that sound like? The Ancient of Days, doesn't it? Look at Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. That is to say, the Son of Man is distinguished from and identified with the Ancient of Days. It's right there, the Son of Man, who rules and reigns now and forevermore. So when it's all over, notice Daniel concludes, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, do you think? His color changed, do you think? But I kept the matter in my heart. Bottom line, God wins. God wins. Whatever age in which God's people live, Daniel reminds us that all earthly kingdoms are doomed to fail. Period. They're all doomed to fail. They will all be destroyed by the king, Jesus Christ, who established his everlasting kingdom by a life of perfect obedience to the Father, by suffering and dying, by rising again from the dead, conquering for us the, the enemy of all enemies, death and Satan. It's done. It truly is finished, Jesus said. Amen? Amen. So the same one, this Jesus, will return to the earth, raise the dead, judge the world, making all things new, consummating at his second coming the kingdom he established at his first coming, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Amen? I hope that helps. Father, please let this help. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.